You may be seated. We are continuing our study through the book of Titus this morning, and uh, we're calling this study The Good Life, and I want to invite you uh, to get your Bibles open uh, to our text for today, which is Titus 2, verses 1 through 10. I also want to remind you as you're getting there that if you're working on memorizing those verses I challenged you with the first uh, uh, week of our series, which is Titus 2, 11 to 14. And we're going to be studying that passage next week. So I hope you're continuing to work on that, getting it into your heart um, and into your mind very deeply. This is the word of the Lord for us today, beginning in verse 1. The Apostle Paul writes, You, however, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, and to be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign the word of God. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Teach slaves or bond servants to be subject to their masters in everything to try to please them, not to talk back to them and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. And this is the word of the Lord and all God's people say, amen. amen. 2007, the Washington Post conducted an experiment. They hired Joshua Bell, a world-class violinist, to play a concert in the D.C. subway one morning during rush hour. He was dressed in street clothes. He stood next to a trash can. He had his violin case open on the ground to receive tips. But he was playing a $3.5 million Stradivarius. And he did it for 45 minutes as 1,100 people walked by. Now, when Joshua Bell plays in a concert hall, he, he earns around $1,000 a minute kind of close to what you guys pay me. Um, <laughs> but that morning, just 20 people stopped. 20 people gave him a tip. He got $32 in total. Everyone else just walked by. They didn't look at him. They didn't notice. They didn't stop and, and listen because something absolutely extraordinary was standing right in front of them and they totally missed it. They didn't even see it. And the question is, why? Why didn't they stop and listen to this incredible talent playing this unbelievably beautiful music right there in front of them? Same violinist, same $3.5 million violin that would be playing in a concert hall where people would pay hundreds of dollars for tickets, but they're in the subway, they're in the rush and the busyness of life. No one noticed the beauty. I think something similar happens with the gospel all the time. The gospel has infinite value. It tells us of the creator of the universe who comes in the flesh and he plays the song of redemption. And yet, 
So many people just walk by. They never see the value. They, they, they never notice what is there right in front of them. And then we have to ask the question, I think, because we're here in church this morning, how many of them don't notice, don't stop, because of the way that we sometimes live? Here's what's going on in Titus uh, in general and in Titus 2 in particular. Uh, Paul is showing us that how we live our lives can either make the gospel look good or look bad. When our lives align with the gospel, when our lives align with Jesus, they, they make the gospel look good. They adorn the gospel, as some translations say in verses, uh, verse 10. But when our lives don't align, It leads to scorn for the gospel. And I think that we need to recognize how deeply this reality matters in a place like the Bay Area where we live, a place where so many people today are not even willing to listen to the gospel message. In 2014, the uh, magazine, the Los Angeles Weekly, had an article that was titled The 10 Most Shameful Things to Admit in L.A. And number six was being a Christian. They, they admitted, um, we know this, right, that L.A. is like the world capital of kooky spiritual beliefs. But this is what the article said. Christianity is perhaps the kookiest spiritual belief of all. Amen. <laughs> Christianity is deeply uncool. That's what they said, and that's what a lot of people in the Bay Area, what a lot of your neighbors think as well. Now, The reality is many people today do not see the gospel as good and the theological reality is that none of us do, none of us can until God opens our eyes. But far too often, people like us who say they follow Christ fail to live like it. Our lives make the gospel look bad, not good. And this is part of what was happening in Crete. These these Christians who, who claimed that they were followers of Christ were living more like the culture around them than the Jesus that they said was in them. Now, in verses one through 10 of this chapter, Paul is going to give us, and we've already, I think, heard that, very practical instructions for how to live lives that make the gospel look good, lives that align with sound doctrine. And Paul does this by addressing specific groups of people in the church at Crete. He talks to older men, Older women, younger women, younger men, and then finally to bond servants. And what he's doing is he wants to make them see that there is a way to live and that aligns with the gospel, that makes the gospel attractive, that draws people to Jesus. Now, the background of this is Paul is doing something that they would have recognized uh, very quickly back then. It was very common back then. He's giving them a a life code, a code of living, a a model to follow. And and he's, he's showing them examples of what it looks like to follow Jesus in different stages of life. And the question that's underneath this for us today is how often does what we believe about Christ shape the way that we live for Christ? That's what Paul is driving at. Now, we're gonna walk through this 
passage verse by verse and just learn uh, how we can make the gospel look good in our lives each day. Just one at a time, a verse at a time. Verse one, uh, Paul speaks of the truth that leads to godliness. And if you've been reading Titus, you'll remember this goes back to the very first verse of chapter one. He brings this subject up again in the first verse of chapter two. And he says to Titus, you, however, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. He begins, notice, you, however. He's setting a contrast. He's pointing back to something Literally, and if you have maybe the ESV, you see this, the text says, but as for you. He's contrasting with what he's just written. And if you're here last week, maybe you'll remember that we saw that Paul was warning about the danger of counterfeit gospels. He was, he was talking how counterfeit gospels produce counterfeit lives. And these Cretans, some of them professed to know God, but their lives denied him. They, couldn't, they didn't show it. They were living like a lot of people today as functional atheists. And the truth that they were, they were learning wasn't leading to godliness. Paul is saying right here, don't live like that. Be different. He's saying that true encounters with the true gospel always leads to true life change, whereas false doctrine, that leads to fake lives. Paul says we must be different And he's saying we're different from the culture around you for a very specific reason. He says you must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. There is a two-fold command or charge that's going on here. The first is just simply teach sound doctrine. This means in the context of this letter, don't teach the legalism that was being pushed on some churches, mixing law with grace, then on the other side of the coin, don't teach the, uh, the amoral license that was in the Cretan culture where, where everything goes. Don't think you can do whatever you want and ask God to forgive you and he'll always just do it. Now, the second charge is just to teach in a way that practically aligns life with sound doctrine. That brings what we say we believe into line with how we actually live our lives. Here's something I think all of us need to remind ourselves regularly. You cannot truly separate belief from behavior. You really can't. We always end up living in such a way that it reflects what we truly believe. Like, like we live in Tracy, and so when we believe the traffic will be bad, which is always, then we try to leave early, right? Right? We factor that in. We, 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 we live according to our belief. Our belief directs our behavior. But, but the truth is, sometimes we say we believe one thing and then we do another. And it's called hypocrisy. And when people see that in our lives, it makes the gospel look bad. And so I just wanna ask you as we're getting into this, is there anywhere in your life, I you to be honest with yourself, is there anywhere in your life where the reality is your life is saying, don't do what I say, you know, but do what I do. You're telling people to do one thing, but then you're doing another. Is there anywhere in your life where that is not matching up? So Paul calls us to teach sound doctrine. There's something interesting about this word sound. We don't use this word in this way uh, most of the time, but this particular word comes from the Greek word that we derive our word hygiene from. And so sound doctrine here really might be translated as healthy doctrine. We teach and we live healthy doctrine. The gospel writers, 
they would often use the same word whenever Jesus healed someone physically. These people were now sound or they were healthy. They had been made whole. That's the idea. And so, so the goal is not just to have correct doctrine so like you can pass a test. The goal is to have healthy doctrine that leads to a life that aligns with that truth that's reflected in the, the doctrine. In other words, false uh, doctrine isn't dangerous just because it's wrong. False da- doctrine is unhealthy. It's like a disease that spreads in the body of Christ. It, it attacks the health uh, of the church from within. So healthy doctrine is always rooted in truth. But that's not really the focus Paul is going at today. We'll really get more to that next week. But here Paul is a, talking about the healthy life that flows from healthy doctrine. And I just wanna ask, is this something that is reflected in your life? Could someone who knows about your life look at you and say, you don't do what you say. You're not practicing what you're preaching. This is what Paul is talking about here. He wants us to have this healthy doctrine, but then that is to lead to a healthy life, life that is aligned with the doctrine. This is what Paul has been saying from the beginning, going back to verse one when he talks about the truth that leads to godliness. This is why in the last chapter, we saw last week, Paul tells Titus to appoint elders so they can teach sound doctrine, healthy doctrine. It's why a few verses later in chapter one, he tells Titus that he needs to uh, refute false doctrine. See, he's just showing us again and again what a life that's aligned with sound doctrine looks like. And he's just warning them against having a life that doesn't align with the truth that you say that you believe. And he would just say in the language of chapter two, when you live a life in a line with the gospel, it adorns the gospel. When you don't live a life in a line with the gospel, it leads to scorn for the gospel. Now, before we go through this, I, I, I'm gonna say a couple of things that I think will help you frame this. Paul starts by talking to the older men and then the older women, and, and it's important that we, we understand some cultural differences uh, that might make us misread what Paul is saying. See, I think we have to regularly remind ourselves that the scripture was uh, not written to us, but it was written for us. And so we need to remember the people who received it first. This is a letter written first to Titus, first to his time, these people in Crete. And we need to remember that they would have heard some things differently than we do because they had categories that were different than ours today. So a couple clarifications on cultural difference. The first one is, uh, in their time, they only had two categories of age. There was childhood and adulthood, right? I don't know if you know about this, but this is a common thing throughout most all of history until recently. We, we have this thing today we call adolescence. And we're all very familiar with this. This may be a shock to you, but this is a very recent invention. It's like a 20th century invention. If you were to go back 100 plus years, people would not have understood what you meant at all if you talked about adolescence, this kind of space you know, between childhood and adulthood. It's really a social construct that we've created, this, this gray area between the ages, and we've kind of turned it into a time where you can kind of just do whatever you want. And you don't have to have responsibility for anything, right? What you need to know, whatever you think about adolescence today, what you need to know is that would have been utterly inexplicable to these readers. 
they would have had no idea what you were talking about. And what you need to know is that they would have been more like mostly all of human history and a lot of the world still today. And most of all people would have thought like they do, not like we do. You know, you, you, they would have lived in a time where when you got to age 12, you were now a man and you started working. That was just the way it is. You were an adult. And it's kind of an interesting thing. I mean, have any of you noticed this? Am I the only one who've noticed how much farther we push this concept? Do you know that sociologists have actually started writing articles? They've coined a term for it. It's called adult adolescence. I'm not gonna ask you to raise your hand, but how many of you know an adult adolescent? And they're 32. And they still don't know what they're doing. And they think it's fine sitting in their mama's basement playing video games, right, or something like that. We've got this concept now, and it's very, very different. It's very important that we know that's not what Paul is talking about here. And so when Paul is calling someone a young man or a a young woman, he doesn't get them off the hook to be mature and responsible. Second, we need to know about the way we value age in our culture today, how radically different it was from Paul's day. Today, we tend to idolize youth and denigrate aging. And again, this may surprise some of us, but to most of the people in world history and almost every single culture but ours, it was exactly, precisely the opposite. They honored aging. They were suspicious of youth. They saw youth as this often dangerous and foolish time. They, they believed young people needed to grow up and the only way you did that is you had to get wisdom, you had to get experience and you got most of that from older people. But in our culture, like once you're past 25, your life's pretty much over, right? <laughs> and we live in a culture where older people like that are always trying to look younger, right? Sometimes it's embarrassing. You know, our our culture um, often tends to treat senior citizens as a joke. And if it's not a joke for a lot of people, well, (laughs) then um, they say stuff like, oh, they're kind of cute or something like that. They, They minimize older people in our culture. But again, in ancient cultures, And again, in most of the cultures around the world today, it's exactly the opposite. Most cultures have always looked up to older people because of their wisdom and experience. Most cultures look at the danger of youth. They they see the, the folly and the arrogance that comes with it. And so when Paul talks to Titus about older men and older women, he is not putting them down. He's actually holding them up and he's actually honoring them for their wisdom and experience. And we just need to keep that in mind as we we read this. And so Paul, he begins verse two by telling Titus what he needs to uh, tell the older men. He says, teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled and sound in faith and love and in endurance. And so this morning, I, I would like to directly speak to the older men here, both of you. because no one thinks they're older, right? (laughs) Paul is setting forth here, this is what I wanted you to get, he's setting forth a vision of pursuing Christ as passionately in old age as you do in young age. 
Paul is saying when you get older, whatever that is, it is not the time to take the foot off the gas pedal. It is the time to press it down harder, press it to the floor, continue to grow in virtue, continue to grow in your passion for seeking Christ. And again, I want you to see how different this is from what our culture sees as the standard cold code of life for older people, right? We, we know how we're supposed to live according to our culture you know, in different stages of life. See, what, what Paul is calling older men to aspire to here, it's never gonna produce like the Dos Equis guy. It's not gonna be what you get. It's a different model. And I think we tend to see older men in a couple of categories. I'll call the first one grumpy old man. You know, where, 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 where men get bitter and cynical and it's always complaining about the way things are. It was always better back in the old days. They're just, they're just resentful. And the other category is wealthy old men. Where, where getting old is about retiring and relaxing and buying really expensive golf clubs to hide the fact you can't play golf. It's like this American vision of retirement, this idea that I've paid my dues, all that is for me now, I get to relax, it's about me time. I want you to hear the Bible never says anything about that. That does not align with God's agenda for making disciples, passionately working for God's kingdom and finishing the race well. And that's what Paul is talking about here. And if you look, Paul lists six pretty self-explanatory character traits. I'm not going to go into all of them. I just want to focus on the last one because I think it's really interesting. The NIV translates it endurance, but a lot of other versions can translate it with this word steadfastness. And I really like this. The ESV says sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. And I like that word steadfastness because there's something kind of remarkable going on here. Do you notice how Paul breaks up the traditional triad of faith, open, love? And he says, faith, love. And then he inserts steadfastness. I think he's making a point. I think he's saying that soundness, that health, requires steadfastness. And I think he would say today that some of us older men are not healthy because we're not steadfast. Some of us have sat down. We're not running the race. We, we've left the race. And I love this word steadfast. I'm, we, we just don't use it regularly. I think it points to the fact that we don't value the concept. And I'm just asking, can we revive this word in our culture here at Southwinds? Can we start using the word steadfast? I just want us all to be steadfast. I'm, I'm praying that all of us will be steadfast. We just need to use this word more, revive it. Not, not just the word, but, but the concept and I'm serious about this. I mean, you know, forget about sexy. I'm bringing steadfast back. <laughs> like, we need just to get it back in our vocabulary. I see it in the magazines at the grocery store. Ten secrets to a steadfast you. Everybody's buying that magazine, right? See, we need this vision in the church, especially among older men. Now, in verse 3, Paul turns to older women, and again, I want to remind you of the culture here, con the context. I mean, like, have you noticed you can't, you have to put an er on that word. You can't say old women. Like, that's a problem. Don't do that. I would be in trouble if I said old women. You have to put an er on there. If you put an er on there, it's okay. 
And, uh, and again, this is part of, our, part of our culture where we look down uh, on age. And so what Paul is doing here is honoring these women. He's showing them how much they have to offer. He says, likewise, teach the older women, Titus, to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. And, and again, this is a distinctly biblical vision for an older woman. If you're an older woman, and I am not gonna define that age, I'm smarter than that, it's up to you, but if you're an older woman, what's, what's the vision you have for your life? What are you aspiring to? Paul here describes this reverent life that is actively teaching goodness to others. You will notice Paul doesn't say anything about being a cougar <laughs> or about being fierce or, or about going all out to fight the effects of aging. You know, one of the perennial dangers that we face as Christ followers is that we unconsciously breathe in our cultural air and we accept what our culture believes and we never question it. We don't, we don't even see how deeply unbiblical so many of our thoughts actually end up being. We're, we're unaware of how much the, the world influences our, our thinking and thus in the end influences the way we live. We, we, we don't even see it. And I can think of an example uh, to show you. It's, I, it's simply this, you know, everybody knows one of the most effective ways to market a product today is to say it's anti-aging, right? I mean, there's anti-aging serums. There's anti-aging moisturizers and anti-aging lights and masks and procedures like Botox. There's all kinds of things out there you can spend all kinds of money on to tighten and smooth out and plump and exfoliate and rejuvenate. Like God forbid that anyone should have too many wrinkles or fine lines or too little collagen production. God forbid. Why is it so quiet in here? <laughs> is that the conviction of the Holy Spirit across the room right now? I mean, today, we, we, we pretty much, it's interesting, we pretty much think it's wrong to be anti any group of people. Why is it okay to be anti-aging? I mean, I'm feeling more passionate about this all the time. <laughs> Just think about the assumptions in our culture about age and beauty that underlie the way all this stuff is, is marketed. I mean, it's obvious that the assumption is the older you get, the less beautiful you get. Everyone assumes that to look beautiful, you need to look younger. So the older a woman is, the less attractive she is. That's what our culture thinks. That's what a lot of you think. But that's not what the Bible teaches. And that should not be how we understand age or beauty. And again, I'm not saying it's wrong to take care of our bodies. We should do whatever we need to do to stay healthy. But we should not buy into the assumptions that say, Aging is bad. See, we need to allow the word of God to teach us what it means to age in a way that pleases God, not our culture. We need to allow God to teach us and, and when his word teaches us and when we do that, we will begin to truly understand what it truly means to be truly beautiful. We will begin to see that what is truly beautiful are the wrinkles 
on an older woman's face, wrinkles that tell the story of years of faithfulness and sacrificial endurance and love. That is what is truly beautiful. See, when Paul gets into these instructions to older women, he is talking about their character, not their appearance. And he says they should be reverent in the way they live. This, this Greek word for reverence was normally used in the context of priests serving in the temple, which was the dwelling place of God. And so he's essentially saying to women, you need to live and act in such a way that shows that God is living within you, that his presence is in you so that people can look at your life and they can see that God is with you. He goes on to say uh, that older women should not be slanderers or gossips, not be addicted to much wine. And, and by the way, the, the, the two of those are often connected, uh, which you know if you've ever received a drunk dial, you know. Um, he's telling older women not to use their words to tear down, but to build up. In verse four, Paul continues his instruction to older women, but now he's beginning to transition uh, his, to his instruction to younger women. He says, then they, that's the older women, can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children. And I really think a better translation of this word urge, as the NIV does it, is the word train, which a lot of other versions use. I think it's saying older women are to train younger women. And again, it's the opposite of the culture where older women are trying to be like the younger women. They don't want to be like older women. They want to be like the older, uh, they want to be like the younger women rather than looking to them and offering wisdom and experience to train them. He, he calls us, I think, in the church to a culture where older women are discipling and teaching younger women. And this is really something as a church that we want to see, not, not a formal program necessarily, but something that, that really kind of happens organically within the context of community. This, this vision for intergenerational discipleship that as we follow Christ together, where you have experience from life, you share it. And where you have needs, maybe because you don't have experience, you look to someone who has that experience and you look to them to teach you what they have learned. And this takes some important things. It first of all takes humility on the younger woman's part and then it takes intentionality on the older woman's part. But we should constantly be learning from one another in the context of discipleship and communities. In fact, since, we can, since we've talked about what Paul says to older men and older women, if that's you, can I just say if you're an older man or an older woman, again, however you define that, I'm so glad you're here. You know, sometimes Southwinds, we, we see ourselves as a church for younger people and maybe the music is geared towards younger people and sometimes I know people come to Southwinds and maybe they don't even like the music. Maybe it's too loud or something like that. But I know some of you are here because of what God is doing, how God is changing lives, how he is at work in this place and, and I am so glad that you are, are here. And so I hope that if you're older and hear us sometimes focusing on the next generation, which we really should be doing, but you'll also be remembering we need older men and older women to be healthy and to keep growing. It is good for, for all of us. And so I just wanna celebrate you if you are a person of experience, person of, of wisdom. Paul then transitions, um, having instructed the 
younger women to love their husbands and children. In verse five, he, he says to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, to be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign the word of God. And, and again, I think you heard the landmines there when we read it the first time, and again, when I read it just now. Um, and so I wanna say a couple of things. First of all, in his instructions to young women, Paul is not saying that every single woman has to get married and have kids and work only at home. That's really not what it said at all. This is not a universal model. Uh, the Bible often talks about other models. The Bible talks about Lydia, the businesswoman who traveled internationally, planting churches while she did her business. The Bible talks about women like Elizabeth who didn't have children. And actually, go back to that Proverbs 31 woman that the people who say every woman should stay at home, they like to go to and talk about and what you'll see is that woman is an entrepreneur. That woman is running a business. And Paul is really talking here, not giving a universal model. He's talking about uh, the majority. And, and so he says really to them, love your husbands and love your children. That's what wives and mothers are to do. Now, part of what I think also is amazing here is that you might hear that and, th and think to yourself, oh, they need to be trained to love their husbands and to love their children? Why, why would they need to be trained? Well, I would just say, well, look at some of your husbands. Exactly. <laughs> Example number one, right? Takes a lot of training. But here's the deal, here's, here's the thing. We think that love is something that just happens, right? We, we say you fall in love, what, like you tripped? You know, that it just kind of happens. And that's really not the way it is. And so growing in love requires training. And it's so important to, to see that, that we, we need to learn how to love. We, we often need someone to teach us how to love. And if we don't think that, we're confusing love with, with romance. And so this is part of what happens between generations. That we need to be trained to love each other in the context of marriage, this is about love that grows for a lifetime. In the context of children, despite how cute they are when they show up, we still need to learn to love them, right? Because they're not always cute. And, and so this is just the way that it is. And so again, I wanna say to younger women here, be willing to be trained by women who have more experience. And I was thinking about this this week, and here's what I thought about, because I've been watching, I've been observing, and I know that some of you younger women will not be that interested in learning from someone who's older than you because you think the stuff they used to do, we all know that's wrong now. You're actually way more interested in spending hours reading blogs on the internet from people you don't even know than sometimes learning from people you do know and following the counsel of their lives. Just, just saying. He then says that younger women need to be subject to their husbands, and of course, that sets off a lot of red flags to many people. Um, I think it's probably because it's taken out of context. I also think it's pro uh, probably because uh, so many men, let's just be frank about it, abuse this and use it in a way the Bible never intends to it to be used. 
And here's another place where we can add to our list of words we need to bring back. I'm gonna call this word complementarity. We need to learn loving complementarity. And we don't have time this morning to go into a full explanation of the Bible's views on gender and marriage. But, but Genesis at the beginning tells us that men and women were created equal in the image of God and yet we're different, right? Thank God we're different. And our culture is trying to tell us, no, we're not different. That's behind so much of the confusion today. And the, the, the key is understanding the purposes of these differences is for uh, not competing with one another, but complementing one another. In, in Greek, uh, this word that's translated submit or subject can be translated uh, yield or respect or defer. Can be translated put another's good above your own. I'll just tell you, this word does not mean do as you're told. This word does not mean stay in the kitchen, make me a ham sandwich. Not what it means. And men, let me remind you that nowhere in the Bible does it tell you to tell your wife she needs to submit. And I will tell you as your pastor right now, if you are doing that, if you have done that, you're doing it wrong. You're not doing it right. The Bible does not tell you to tell her what you are told to do in Ephesians 5 is to submit to God. What you are told to do, again in Ephesians 5, kind of the classic passage on this subject, is not to boss your wife around, not to tell her to submit, but to love her like Jesus loved the church and know that Jesus died for the church and Jesus sacrificed his life for the church. Now, Here's something very important you need to understand about this passage. Again, cultural differences. The irony here is that we read this and we think the part about wives is scandalous. It makes us all uncomfortable, right? But in the first century, it wouldn't have been like that. It would have been actually the opposite. They would have read the commands about husbands and wives and they would have thought the stuff about the husband was scandalous, because the reality back then, husbands in the first century were not only allowed, they were kind of expected to like sleep around. It was just the way it was. Husbands could just do about anything they wanted to, even abuse, they would not be held accountable for it. They had this unbridled authority in first century Roman culture. And Paul is saying to the husbands, no, sacrifice for your wife. Love her by giving yourself up for her. That would have shocked them. See, we hear submission, that shocks us. But probably the main reason is that we haven't had good models of Christ-like husbands. But when a man loves his wife the way Christ loved the church, when he loves her selfishly, he sets her up to flourish. It's a whole different story, isn't it? It's a vision of flourishing within a covenant marriage where men and women have different roles. And so this is the vision that that. Paul gives for younger women following Jesus. And then he concludes in verse five by saying, so that no one will malign the word of God. And again, he keeps coming back to this. So much of what he's telling us to do and how we live our lives is about our witness outside the walls of the church. It's about showing people that don't know God. This is what God has done in our lives. And so it just kind of means, wives, if you're not loving, um, it hurts the reputation of God's word in the world. And I could say the same thing towards the husbands. It, it, it just means that how we live matters. We need to make the gospel look good. 
In verse six, he transitions to speaking to the younger men. And I'll just say here, if you don't think the Bible has humor, you're not paying attention. Just think about what we've been studying, right? The older men get six character traits to work on. The older women, they get five. Uh, The younger women, they get six or seven, depending on how you kind of count them. And Paul gets to the young men and he says, similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. They get one. That's it. Yeah, that's all they can handle, right? (laughs) So it's like this. Young men, have self-control. Keep your pants on. Turn the TV off. Put the video game controller down. Do something with your life, right? And I think Paul, he's giving this one character of self-control because he knows how vital it is, how it affects everything else in life. It's this simple instruction with enormous implications. He said, he's really telling them when you say no uh, to something, when you're disciplined to some, for something, when you say no to something for the short term, it's for the sake of saying yes to many other things for the long term. It shapes everything about your life. When you're disciplined, it shapes your sexuality. When you're disciplined, it shapes the way you do your job. When you're disciplined, it shapes the way you grow spiritually, the way your family is on and on and on. It changes everything. And it is a high command and it is a hard command. Self-control has always been difficult, especially in our culture today. But I wanna remind us all what God commands in obedience, he always provides in power. He gives us the power to obey him. Self-control is a fruit of the spirit. We do not have to be slaves to our passions. We can be self-controlled. And so, young men, God has called you. Be self-controlled. And then uh, verses seven and eight, Paul instructs Titus about his ministry. Titus is evidently a young man that's part of this category, but he, he gives him some ways that he as a leader should be making the gospel uh, look good. And it basically boils down to this. Uh, it's by living a life of integrity. But again, I want you to see that Paul is saying this with a view towards the world outside, the people that are watching. He says, so that those who oppose us may be ashamed because they really can't say anything bad about us. This is, the, this is why we are to live in lives of integrity and obedience so that God and his gospel and his grace look good. In verse nine, we, we come to something different. Um, he's addressed all these groups of people uh, kind of in family context, and now he, he addresses bond servants. And some of our translations still say slaves. Um, it's not a good translation for our, our culture today because it communicates things that confuse us today. And people read a lot of times this passage and others like it and they say, well, Christianity condones slavery. Why would I be a Christian? But that is not what's going on. And if you read the entire Bible, you would see that. And I'll just put it out there, the Bible never condones involuntary servitude. It never condones capturing someone against their will to to, to work. In fact, you can go to Exodus 21, 16, and and it says there that people who, who enslave other people involuntarily deserve the death penalty. In 1 Timothy 1.10, it's got this list of, of, of sins that deserve God's judgment. One of them is called enslavers. You know, people who capture others and enslave them. And what Paul is speaking of here is there were, there were people who were slaves in the way we would understand it back in that day. 
But Paul is primarily addressing people who were in this category of labor that we more like would call a bondservant. It was a kind of employment. It was protected by Roman laws. One of the most common employment options in the first century. And a lot of bondservants had really important jobs. They were, they were like um, accountants. They were like uh, stewards over uh, uh, a master's business. I mean, very, very influential jobs. They got paid. They had their own possessions. Uh, it's very, very different from what we know as uh, the chattel slavery of American history. American slavery was based on race. It was permanent. It was involuntarily. It was involuntary, but for the bond servant, it was more like what we would call an indentured servant. This kind of, of work was economic, not racial. It was temporary, not permanent, and it was voluntary, and it was not forced. And so what you're seeing here in these verses is more akin to what you know is you have a job. It's employment that's being talked about. And, and so the, the chief application for us today has to do with how we, we do our work. Um, maybe you could put it this way. Christ followers should be good employees. Amen? I mean, we should just be good employees. We should be people of integrity. Our, our faith is not just about what we do in private. It's how, it's how we live our life in the culture. That's what it means to live in alignment with sound doctrine. Every aspect of your life, not just Sundays, but Monday through Friday. And we get to verse 10. This is the culmination, the conclusion. We get to the heart of what Paul is, is driving at in this entire section and, and, and if you read the flow, this is, he connects this to bond servants, but it's more than that. As it concludes this section, it really goes back to everything he's been saying. It's for all Christ followers. And he says this, so that in every way, in fact, why don't you read this with me? So that in every way, they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. This is what Paul has been saying all through this section. It's about making the gospel look good. Now, again, I wanna give you another translation's wording because I think it brings something out. The, the ESV, um, among other translations, uses instead of the word attractive, the word adorn. And it's such a great word. I want you to see its power. And the idea is that the way we live our lives is to showcase the beauty of the gospel. That's what this is about. In fact, this is kind of interesting. The word translated adorn or attractive in Greek is the Greek verb cosmeo. Does that sound like anything to anybody? Yeah, you, you hear it, right? It's where we get the word cosmetic. And I have it from a reliable source that the purpose of cosmetics is not to create beauty, but to enhance and to amplify the beauty that's already there. And that's what we're talking about here. We don't make the gospel beautiful. We don't make the gospel look good or, or attractive, but we can live in such a way that we show how beautiful and attractive and good it already is. Now, this word, uh, cosmeo, was originally used for arranging jewels. And just like if you go to buy a diamond, they don't just stick it on the counter. They lay it on some black velvet, right? They put it in a way that it highlights and enhances and amplifies what is already there. The jewel of our faith is the gospel. The good news that through Jesus Christ, God is our savior. It is already beautiful and attractive. And so you need, need to live your life in such a way that it helps people see. See, we don't, we don't make up truth. We just proclaim it. And we cannot add to the glory of God, but we can show it off. 
And so I just wanna ask you, if you're taking notes, you should write this down. This should be something you kind of meditate on and ponder. Does my life make God look good? Are you willing to ask yourself that question? In Ephesians 2, 5, and then also in Ephesians 2, 8, it says that we are saved by grace through faith. But between those two very familiar verses, Ephesians 2, 7 says, God saved us so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. God is showing off when he saved you. Can God like really truly show off with you? This means that people should look at our lives and they should say, wow, God is gracious. Wow, God is so patient and he changes people's life. Wow, God does not give up on people who are far from him. Can people look at you and see God's grace? I wanna mention 2 Corinthians 2, 14 and 15 also where Paul says, God in Christ always leads us and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere for we are the aroma of Christ. I'll sum it up this way. You can make God smell good. All right, write that down. Think about it. See, our, our lives don't make the gospel any more or less true. The gospel is already glorious, but our lives can either adorn God's message and make it look good or not, or not. Now, again, I wanna be clear. I'm not saying that if we just go out and live for Jesus, everyone is gonna think the gospel is glorious. First Corinthians 1.18 says, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So we need to live in alignment with the gospel and to proclaim the gospel so hopefully that when people see us, it makes sense. When, when people see you, do you understand this? They don't know your beliefs. They can't see your beliefs but they can see your behavior. And when they see the way you act, it shows them something about the faith you have. It shows them something about the gospel you're trusting in. It shows them something about the grace God has lavished on you. See, the gospel may never be glamorous in the world's eyes, but we can show them that it is glorious. I wanna point out one more thing. It's the last thing that I want you to see. And it's one of the best things about this passage. And this is what it is. You can write this down. It it is ordinary life through which God shows off his glory. Do you notice that? This isn't a call to like start a nonprofit or preach to thousands of people. It's about a mom taking care of her kids. It's about young men being self-controlled. It's about older men being steadfast in the gospel. It's about older women teaching younger women. These are the powerful ways that God displays his glory through the gospel in our lives. You know, I know some of you don't know Christ and you're here this morning. And maybe, just maybe, you've seen the beauty of the gospel through some of the lives around you. Maybe, maybe you've seen the community, some people that you know have, the, the contentment that they have, the, the joy that they have. And maybe, maybe you find yourself sometimes saying to yourself, I, I really want that. But you have to understand, you can't ask for the benefits of the king without becoming a part of his kingdom. 
You have to come to know the king himself. And that's the gospel. You have to come to Jesus in repentance, turning from your sin, admitting you can't make it on your own. You have to come to Jesus and say, I am now placing my trust, all of my trust in you, Jesus. I'm looking for my satisfaction. I'm looking for my significance. I'm looking for my security now in you, Jesus, in you alone. And when you do that, you can know the king. You can know his grace because you're experiencing his gospel. And when you, when you experience his gospel, you begin to see the goodness and the beauty of God. This is good news. And it's available to everyone, this good life that Titus is talking about. I um, want to end by taking you back to the story we began with. We, we talked about that, a performance that hardly anyone noticed in 2007. But in 2014, a Joshua Bell gave that DC subway metro station another chance. Once again, he took that $3.5 million violin to the subway, but this time they announced it beforehand. This time people were ready. This time they made sure to show up and pay attention, and over 1,500 people crammed into that subway station, and everyone said it was the, one of the most beautiful experiences they'd ever had. The music played. The people rejoiced at its beauty. And again, the violin and the violinist was the same, hadn't changed, but the people were now aware and they could rejoice in the beauty of the song. See, Titus here is telling us that by God's grace, the gospel song is being played throughout the world, and God has gathered people from all the nations to rejoice in the song of redemption, to make God look good. And so, Southwinds, let me just say to you today, let's sing the song. Let's sing the song. Let's adorn the gospel. Let's make the grace of God look good so that a world all around us that is longing for goodness, longing for truth, longing for beauty, so they can see. That's the word of God for us today. Would you bow your heads as we pray? Father God, we thank you so much for your grace in our lives that when we open your word we know we're not opening a book of rules that just tell us what to do and not do. But we're opening, Lord, a story of grace and redemption about what you've done for us. And so we thank you for that grace that we receive in Jesus, how he changes us. And God, we confess that so often our lives don't match up to what we believe to be true about you. And so we ask, as your people now, for the power of your spirit to transform us even more Lord, to transform us um, from the inside out, to help us live in alignment with the truth that we believe so, so that we can show off the beauty of the gospel to the world. Lord, help people to see Jesus through us. Help them to see, Lord, how good you are. And we thank you, Lord, for your goodness. We thank you for your grace. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.